I was sitting in McSorley's. Outside, it was New York and beautifully snowing. So begins the E. Cummings poem of the same name. I was sitting in McSorley's from Tulips and Chimneys, 1923. There's a sense of timelessness there, right? The bar is a world unto itself. It's not New York anymore. Outside is New York. And you can observe it, frame it with the window, turn it into a picture. The poem is long, twisting, meditative. That bar is like the inside of Cummings' head. Inside, snug and evil, slobbering walls, filthily plush. There's a gooey, messy timelessness to it. Later, the lines are, I was sitting in the den, thinking, drinking ale, which never lets you grow old. Part of the concept here is that a bar is something that's outside of time. Anyone who's spent a fair amount of time in a bar in the daytime understands what this feels like when you walk outside and you're surprised that it's not night. It's timeless. It's a world of its own that doesn't change and doesn't need to change. The setting is uh, appropriate. If you've ever been to McSorley's Ale House in New York City, you'll know that uh, it's pretty timeless. It's like a museum of 19th century curios and ephemera. There's just crap all over the place. There's Harry Houdini handcuffs and things like that. It's known as the oldest Irish saloon in New York City, but I guess it's famous for a lot of reasons. I mean, presidents, politicians, poets, painters, all were said to have frequented it. There are some great poems about it. There's some great paintings about it, too. One, uh, one is by John Sloan, uh, and it's a, a picture of the barman being surrounded by cats. There were cats in there, and by cats, I mean, you know, actually feline four-leggers. They kept them in there to catch mice, which was common, um, but uh, in 2011, at least officially, I don't know, um, the cats were banned from the bar, um, like, you know, legally... They were compelled to remove the cats. There's an actual law um, connected to the name McSorley. Uh, it's called McSorley's Law, or at least informally it is. I don't know if it is, you know, in the law books. But uh, it was famous for successfully legally prohibiting women to enter until 1970. And it didn't get a woman's bathroom until 1986. You know, bars were... The sole domain of men until, you know, recently. Other things, you know, um, where women came in were, were, you know, nightclubs or things like that. But saloons, taverns, bars, the domain of men. John Sloan uh, is an interesting painter. He did other paintings of McSorley's, too. He was the center point of what came to be called the Ashcan School. Um, and he was also among a group of painters um, called The Eight, which included people like Edward Hopper, who himself has a, an interesting bar painting. It's called Sunday, 1926. It features a, a barkeep with his 
black vest and white shirt, garters on his arms, sitting outside of the saloon on Sunday. A lot of people talk about it as a as a working class painting where, you know, when the working class doesn't have their function, this guy doesn't have a bar to tend on Sunday, then they're just sort of sitting there waiting. Um, and I think it's interesting. I, I really like the painting. Uh, a lot of people fail to mention or recognize that uh, 1926 is six years after the 18th Amendment. So, uh, I don't know. I guess the bars were still open six years later, and they were, of course. There was an attempt by writers um, and artists and photographers to sort of capture the breadth of experience, uh, particularly of city life in New York City around the, the turn of the century. The naturalist writers like Stephen Crane, whose Maggie Girl of the Streets is largely also about bars. Um, they were a, a place where you could see a cross-section of American life. Um, it's where the, you know, it's where the working class would come into uh, contact with the political class. And McSorley's was representative of that. Um, there was also, you know, an interest in showing the middle class, the sort of lower classes, the working classes, and the and the struggling uh, classes. Jacob Ritz, um, the photographer and newspaper man, social reformer, has a book called How the Other Half Lives. And the other half is the poor. And he shows uh, depictions of poor folks uh, and their living conditions in graphic detail. The Ashcan schools, you know, rejected conventional subjects and representations and offered, you know, grittier, realer portrayals of American life. Um, they weren't necessarily, you know, in the quote-unquote slums in the way that Stephen Crane is or that uh, Jacob Riss is, but there was a, uh, uh, a similar movement to show you know, the vigorous working and middle class in, in someone like Sloan. And his McSorley's painting is, uh, is I would say, representative of that. And it seems to capture the essence of the bar as well. Sloan's portrayal, I think, is completely positive, And Cummings is, I think, is somewhat ambivalent. But they share that kind of timelessness um, that I think is, at some level, the point of a bar. And it's why um, a place like McSorley's can hang on to some outmoded social conventions for, you know, generations beyond um, where we thought they would have been erased. Looking at the 1912 Sloan painting, which is called McSorley's Bar, right to the left of center in the painting, we see two barmen in white shirts, black bow ties, aprons. In the dead center and running towards the right edge of the painting... We see some old-fashioned English ale hand pumps. I've only been to McSorley's once, but I still recognize it as the same place. They still have those taps, by the way. One of the weirdest elements of the painting and of the place is uh, they've got these carved heads on the wall above the bar. Again, they've got all kinds of just like really interesting and weird stuff, which is a, actually a feature of some early bars. I remember a place you used to have to enter through a barber shop full of old men, and it had, like, murder weapons from local murders and stuff. I guess people just, you know, brought into the bar, and they'd put a little tag on them and put them on display. It became a, 
local history museum. In the lower right-hand corner of the painting, there are a couple of guys in an earnest discussion. There's an older man in a vest, a white shirt underneath. He looks, uh, you know, at least uh, middle class. There's a stout younger guy. He's got a handlebar mustache. He's in overalls. He's all in denim. The older man has his hand um, extended, his finger pointing right to the middle of the other guy's chest like he's imploring him to believe something important. I'm not sure exactly what's going on there, but it is true that saloons were the place where the political class had access to the working man in an informal way and in a way that seemed kind of equal and was probably appealing to the working class. The Anti-Saloon League was a powerful force in uh, early 20th century American politics. They lost uh, some power and authority because they failed to uh, disassociate themselves with the Ku Klux Klan. So making exigent deals with bad people is bad politics. Anyway, one of their problems they had with saloons was that they were the site um, of political corruption and that they were the exclusive domain of men. I mean, how are you going to run your cooping scheme without a male place to draw men into? It's kind of interesting. Um, it was about men. I mean, as I mentioned, the saloon, the American saloon, was an exclusively male place, at least until like the 60s or 70s. What's interesting is that during Prohibition, women and men started drinking together, actually, and there was a relaxed so social atmosphere because if it was already illegal to be there, then it was difficult to police sort of minor social divisions, and there was more mixing in that space than there had been before. But uh, afterward, it seemed that some establishments wanted to go back to the old model. So that's kind of interesting. Um, but the Anti-Saloon League and the suffragist movement were, were marching in the same direction uh, in terms of uh, getting the political domain exclusively out of the hands of, of men. Another problem the Anti-Saloon League had is that breweries owned 85% of the saloons. This was actually a barrier in the 1980s when small breweries like Sierra Nevada and the craft brewing movement wanted to open pubs because there were still laws on the books that prevented breweries from opening saloons. Brewery ownership of bars was a problem because not only did it make them disproportionate players in the political sphere, it also destroyed some of the local social function of the corner saloon as a men's club that also might look out for members or, you know, patrons in hard times, kind of like the social aid and pleasure clubs in New Orleans. Um, and it turned into a them into a place where men were preyed upon for their dollars as well as their votes. They were often situated between factories and tenement buildings, and they'd try to draw that man with his paycheck, or extend predatory credit to him. They had that kind of Gilded Age faux opulence that seemed attractive to a guy who spent all day in a factory, went home to a squalid room he didn't own. You know, he could be a part of something there that seemed to match his aspirations for a few hours, and it was a space where his old lady couldn't haul him out of. You know, I guess. 
still may be true. At least it was a, It was true not long ago. The bar was a kind of social club you didn't have to join. If you weren't of the social class to join a men's club or didn't fit in there, you could just walk into a bar and have that same warm, timeless, womanless experience. It was like a toxic masculinity training facility. Of course, bars and saloons weren't just gender segregated. Jacob Lawrence, the painter I discussed in the last podcast, uh, has a painting from the same era as the Migration Series. In fact, it's dated 1941. It's kind of right in there. Um, It depicts a strange bar where black and white patrons are separated by what alternately looks like either a wall with some slits in it or bars with some daylight around it, as in like a jail. Um, And then there's a strange, like, science fiction-looking bartender who can transit to either side. The side with the black patrons not only features Lawrence's signature in the upper right of the painting, which is kind of unusual, you know, um, but it also shows men and women in the bar. So it's a gender-integrated space. They seem to be having a lot more fun than the white patrons, too, incidentally. I remember my first drink in a bar really well. I just turned 16. Had to go track down my boss. My boss used to do business in a crappy bar that doubled as an office for a trailer park that shared its property. He'd sit at the end of the bar with a phone, with a cord pulled out across the bar so the barkeep couldn't get past it and have to duck under it. He'd talk to the architect or the inspector, supplier, whatever, track down people to do work. He'd also sell cocaine. I think that was uh, common in bars back then. A lot of nefarious activity going on in there. There's cash. There's people in close contact with each other. It's difficult to see what's going on. It's dark. It seems to be a, a prime environment for that. came in to talk to him. He says, get this man a drink. The bartender says, he looks like a little kid. My boss says, I think probably with some uh, implied physical violence backing it up, he's the only good man I have right now. You know, there was something thrilling and affirming about drinking in bars, particularly before I was of age or shortly after I turned 21. It was hard to separate the toxic masculinity from the masculinity part of it. The seedier, the better, too. We call these places dive bars now, uh, but I guess like a quote-unquote real bar from the old days is called a dive bar now. Charles Bukowski, I guess, is the poet laureate of the dive bar though Tom Waits would rate higher for me because he he seems to see the the humor in it. There's a really funny satirical article online where allegedly the bathroom stall at the bar near Tom Waits's house over in Sebastopol or whatever is suing him for providing all of his lyrics over the years and Tom Waits does have a lot of that sort of bathroom, stall, barroom cliche built into his work that I think is cool. Anyway, Bukowski has a poem called The Suicide Kid where he writes, I went to the worst bars hoping to get killed, but all I could do was to get drunk 
again. Getting killed slowly. Slow suicide. Suicide by inches. Chronic suicide. Sorry, that's a little homage to Joe Frank, who was the patron saint of Otis Brown Podcast, by the way. Check him out. If you're not familiar with Joe Frank, uh, your time is better spent listening to him than to me. I wasn't trying to get killed, and I also really didn't like the violence I saw in or, you know, around, usually outside of these bars. But, you know, there were traditions and rituals. There were tricks and secrets. There were rules, rights, and responsibilities. It was appealing to me. I got kicked out, by which I mean, you know, forcibly removed from the town lounge. Not for the swearing in front of the ladies, which I did. Randy, the old bartender, when you'd swear, he'd say, Young man, there's ladies in here. But that was just a warning, you know. It was the smart remark, which I won't repeat afterward, that got me kicked out. I had to apologize the next day, you know, sober. And I had to do it right, or I wasn't getting back in the bar. But, you know, I did it. I gained some status for doing it right. I was working on a poem about this. I gave up on it. But it ended, it'll teach you to become some kind of a man. And not a good one, either. I don't think it's a good line. I don't think the poem's working. I don't really think a bar culture is working, either, though, to tell you the truth. I mean, yeah, there were some rules. There were some things that you had to do. There was a certain kind of, like, man thing that you could learn from that, but I don't know how useful that was in the world. It seemed to represent an old world that's gone. The bars are dying in a lot of ways, and some really famous old-school bars have died and more will not bounce back from the pandemic. And there are a lot of articles online. You know, writers have been attracted to bars, obviously. And, uh, and you know, there's a ton of nostalgia in describing why they're dying. I don't think they're dying because of drunk driving laws or changing drinking habits or Netflix. I'm sure that those are factors and those are often things that are blamed. I think that they are dying because they are still, like all that crap packed around McSorley's, still laden with the residue of the misogyny, the racism, the violence, the exploitation that defined them from the beginning. And I'm not saying that all bars are all bar culture is permeated by this. But there is something about the way they've worked in the past that seems particularly out of date. But, you know, bars have been around for a long time. They're resilient. They shut down before, obviously. During Prohibition, they eventually shut down. And I think that, you know, they will outlive this time when they're struggling. And I think they'll do it, at least some of them, by evolving toward something that's better. You know, I can point to a few that are already doing that, frankly. And, you know, I, 
I'm happy to go in them. I'm glad I never, you know, claimed my permanent seat at the town lounge or the town pump or the dew drop in or even the fabled plow and stars that I think is gone now where I used to stop in occasionally. On the other hand, I can't wait to play my guitar too loud in some dive full of sweaty hipsters. I don't know. On my way to the boat yesterday, I stopped at a light downtown. I saw an old ruined bar sign. The glass was broken out of it. The place was boarded up. It hadn't been open in years. It was part of a ruined hotel. It was unsubtly named the Hunter's Mark, and you could still see the, you know, the painting behind what had been the, uh, the neon glass. And I couldn't help but take it as a metaphor. It's what I do. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you, friends. Um, be well. I'll see you next week. Take care of each other.